Hi, this is Dominic Preziosi, host of the Commonweal Podcast. On today's episode, we have our senior editor, Matthew Boudway, talking with Phil Cly about Phil's review of the new Michelle Welbeck novel, Serotonin. Also today, associate editor Matthew Sintman speaks with longtime Commonweal contributor and political columnist E.J. Dion Jr. about his new book, Code Red. This is the Commonweal Podcast. I'm here today with Phil Cly, who is a, a new Commonwealth contributor, and his first contribution to the magazine is a review of the latest novel by the French writer Michel Welbeck. Phil is the author of Redeployment, which won the National Book Award for Fiction in 2014, and we're very pleased to have him here. Thrilled to be in your pages and thrilled to be on the podcast. Thank you. So, Phil, this was the first, actually the first Welbeck novel that you had read. Yeah. yeah is that yeah. right? So I've got friends who've been telling me I need to read Wellbeck for years, and and I read more than just Serotonin, some of the backlog. But yeah, so this was my my first experience. I sort of knew of him. I knew that he was the enfant terrible of the French literary scene. I'd read some of his essays, and it's quite a novel. My experience of it was, uh, you know, as I say in the review, it's a revolting book, right? And it's a deliberately revolting book. It's a fascinating failure of a novel, I think. He's clearly a brilliant writer, clearly a brilliant man, and also, you know, sort of something of a of a troll. Uh, and I think some of those tendencies get the better of him uh, in this novel. Right. Now, uh, most of our listeners will, will probably know what you mean by troll, but it's a, a term that's taken on new meaning since the world of Twitter and Facebook have grown up. So, what exactly do you mean by a troll? How does that compare with enfant terrible? <laughs> He's trying to offend you, right? right. I mean, so I'll give a uh, a quick sample from the book to give you a sense. He's talking about Paris, and, and he loathes Paris, and he describes it as a, a city infested with eco-friendly bourgeois. And then he writes, perhaps I was a bourgeois too, but I wasn't eco-friendly. I drove a diesel 4x4. I mightn't have done much good in my life, but at least I contributed to the destruction of the planet. Yeah. Um, which and is, there's, there's another great quote which is funny. that you that you, you quote him in, in the first paragraph of the review. You uh, you quote him saying that he lives you know in the secularized civilization of the third millennium. Quote one millennium too many in the way that boxers have one fight too many. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that's you know that's very much the way that a lot of these novels, uh, a lot of his work feels that there's this sort of Western civilization has pushed itself to a per- certain point. It is exhausted. There's very little to look forward to on the horizon. And there's a kind of nostalgia for earlier eras. But at the same time, you know, you don't really get a sense that he could sort of wholeheartedly embrace the worldview of earlier eras. That um, he, I quote him later on in the piece, in an interview where he's talking about how the revitalization of Christianity could maybe rejuvenate our civilization, right? And when he's talking about the, 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 the sorts of things that he admires are, he brings up the example of you know, 12th century Christians building Romanesque cathedrals, right? It's a fundamentally nostalgic worldview, even though he has this reputation as a writer of being on, on the cutting edge of current thought, because you know he's writing about Islamic fundamentalism before that becomes, becomes popular. And, you know, here he's writing a book where 
He shows farmers in this kind of absurd fight against the European Union where it's very clear from the perspective of the novel, he believes in what the farmers are doing and their sort of local traditions and way of life he thinks is very valuable and also utterly, utterly doomed by global capitalism. You know, he's writing about these these protests before, you know, the the French protests. And even, you know, in his kind of the humor of an internet troll. But of course, he's he had developed that style of, you know, sort of pushing people's buttons and, and saying the inappropriate thing to get a rise out of uh, out of people and also to sort of expose what our modern sacred cows are so that we can look at them. You know, that's a style of humor that's become much more popular of late that, you know, in some ways he he was doing much far, far before it achieved that level of prominence. So he sounds fascinating, but you still say the book itself is a failure as a novel. How does it fail? So you have this main character, Florent Claude Labrouste. He sees a couple of hot women, has sexualized feelings about them, though he's taking this antidepressant that destroys his libido. And then that kind of sparks these changes in how he's feeling about his life. He discovers that his girlfriend, who he holds in utter contempt, has been cheating on him extravagantly, having like these Mm -hmm. wild internet porn-influenced orgies in his apartment. Some uh, some of them involving non-humans. Yes, some of them involving (laughs) non-humans. And uh, so he decides he's just going to disappear from life, right? He goes into a hotel and then sort of doesn't have anything to do, is dying of sorrow, his psychologist diagnoses him, and he starts reminiscing about old girlfriends, then he sort of goes to see some of them, he visits a friend, and has these sort of discourses on sex, on agriculture, on the global economy, on consumer society, on sex, on women, sex, women's genitalia, sex, 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 and so on. And you know, punctuated with the, this humor. A lot of it doesn't always work or you don't necessarily believe what he's telling you. There's a scene in the, in the novel where the narrator discovers a child abuser, right? And doesn't do anything. And he sort of discovers the tapes the guy has made of his sexual acts with a child. You know, in his sort of internet troll style, Welbeck describes how the narrator is disgusted looking at the tapes because the technical skill of the amateur videographer is so poor, right? There's, there's no moral disgust whatsoever. And it's sort of lines like that that are, are kind of peppered throughout where it feels like he, he's almost trying too hard with his nihilism because the, that's how the plot is structured. It's sort of aimless, right? It's, yep. it's the description of an aimless person. It doesn't have much forward momentum. And a lot of the individual scenes don't work. You don't necessarily believe a lot of the characters as people, especially the women, are just utter caricatures, which is a problem in part because, you know, the one thing that the novel keeps coming back to is the possibility of, like, forming a genuine attachment to another human being as being a possible way out of this hell, right? And the hell is not just the hell of being, like, a sort of nasty, crude, and although also extremely erudite guy, but a sort of view of the human condition where you're reducing everything to its most crude level, often with a kind of pop science, so the brain is nothing but chemicals, right? And that's the serotonin of the novel's title, and he's fiddling with the intake of chemicals that will affect the, you know, what's going on in his brain, or we're just sort of biological creatures fulfilling biological imperatives, right? One of the 
characters in the book, his friend, the farmer, is having this sort of basic crisis of his place in the world and what he's doing. And it seems to be a crisis of meaning, but it's described by the narrator as a biological crisis, right? What is the point of saving a defeated old male? He talks about the sort of height of Western culture, Thomas Mann, Proust, and he just sort of turns those into sort of failed attempts to channel brute sexual urges. And the possibility of anything outside the self, outside of this sort of prison of a kind of individual consciousness that doesn't believe in anything sacred, ultimately, in itself, in the world at large. And the thread that might offer you a way out of that is the sort of first inkling that there's a possibility of moving beyond that view is through this like continual attempt to form a genuine connection or to revolve around the possibilities he had had of maybe forming genuine connections with other romantic partners. And yet, none of those characters have any life in them at all. You know, the descriptions of the character's genitalia tend to stay in your mind more than anything that he's doing to evoke their character. And so, you know, the novel kind of is interesting. It engages with a lot of ideas that are worth thinking about. I, I found it more interesting to read than a lot of books that, on a technical craft level, are much more effective uh, right. in doing what they're doing. And yet, <laughs> it's, it's very difficult to say this is a good book, right? right? It's boring. Mm. It's sexist. It's crude. Yes, it's crude deliberately but also sometimes in a in a way that feels cheap like in that um sort of child abuse scene right. where it doesn't feel it doesn't feel real it feels like a like an internet troll right yeah. making one cheap joke after the next you know the first time that he you know makes a queer joke is not even that funny the first time but the third time okay i get it this is this is stale right i mean a defender of this book and other wellbeck books might say that the narrative entropy that you're describing is sort of a necessary correlative of the main theme of his work, which is civilizational entropy, cultural entropy. Uh, the aimlessness of the characters, that's a common... That's a, even his best novels, like the one before this, I think is very good, Submission. There's, there's still that quality of aimlessness. This is sort of a, a Nietzsche's last man with mm -hmm. this difference, that he's self-aware of being a last man, and therefore he's also just constantly struggling with self-loathing. This is true. This is true, though, in Wilbeck's better novels. I mean, The Elementary Particles has aimless characters, but um, it's not boring, right? right. It's actually a tight, tightly written book that really moves forward and is continually fascinating and where the characters, frankly, have more life. I think there's... <laughs> so this is a just novelist, shoddy craftsmanship. A novelist will always have an excuse to be boring. <laughs> Very rarely do I feel that there is a, is, is a genuine excuse. And also, I don't think that the failures of characterization are excusable. Right. The sexism is kind of revolting in its own right, but it's also a craft failure, right? Creating caricatures on the page. Mm -hmm. It's very difficult to do something interesting with them, mm -hmm. even if it's, you know, okay, we're seeing these people through the lens of this fundamentally broken human being. And so he's not seeing people in their richness is, yeah. I guess, one way to think about it. But it does flatten your engagement with the novel and turns the novel more into a series of interesting thought exercises than a novel. So for me, the thing that I would really want in a book like this, and something that I think you do have in other, other novels of Welbeck's, is where you are forced at a very uncomfortable level to engage with the characters, right? Even in their vileness and, and the sort of grotesqueries that he'll, he'll put them through or have them believe, where you are experiencing life in a way 
that makes you sympathetic to those ugly aspects of human nature. When you read, you know, sort of the child abuse section, you don't feel that you're reading a real character. You feel like you're reading uh, a novelist playing a game. Mm. Right. Uh, and that it's just fiction's best can do much, do so much more. Right. Uh, maybe we should circle back briefly to something that you, you mentioned in passing earlier, which is Welbeck's fascinating attitude toward religion. Yes. His attitude toward Christianity and Catholic Christianity in France in particular, it's complicated. He, he admires Christianity. He finds it honorable uh, and intriguing, mm-hmm. but he also finds it literally incredible. Yes. <laughs> so he would like to be a believer because he thinks that's one of the few points of reference or rebuilding some sort of meaning in, in, a, in a defeated West where meaning is hard to come by. But he just can't bring himself, despite every effort, to actually believe the things Christians need to believe in order for Christianity to do this kind of psychological and cultural work. Right. So he's, he's looking for, and I think this is one of the things that's really interesting about him and about this book, he's looking not just for an alternative to what he feels like is the kind of logical endpoint that modern civilization has reached, which is this sort of materialist, consumerist world in which scientific rationality and sort of a brute materialism govern everything, right? And which is fundamentally cruel and uproots local structures. There's a really powerful passage in the book where this sort of girlfriend, Camille, who's like the the woman who is a character you see in other books of, of Welbeck's was this is like this woman who you think could have saved him, but it doesn't work out between them. And then she just kind of like becomes like this hermetically sealed, perfect woman in a box for the rest of her life. Right. Right. So she'd been studying to be a veterinarian and she's sent to a farm for eggs, for getting eggs. And one of the nice things is he makes clear that it's a cage free farm so theoretically you would think this is one of the better places for a chicken to live and when she sees it it is this utterly horrifying vision of of hell basically where he writes thousands of chickens tried to survive in sheds lit from above by powerful halogens featherless and scrawny their skin irritated and infested with red mites they lived among the decomposing corpses of their fellows and spent every second of their brief existence a year at most squawking with terror and he goes through, and, and Welbeck clearly knows agriculture, and he describes this scene in detail, but also the way it is indicative of just the way modern, large-scale farming works, and right. the way that it just is this incredible engine for cruelty, right? And, you know, the, the innocent girlfriend is like, how could people do this? You know, and he, he doesn't really have anything to say other than uninteresting thoughts about comments on human nature, right? Yeah. And then later we get the sort of vision of heaven, which is basically like a supermarket, right? Like a modern supermarket where you have just goods from all over the world, the product of these like complex logistical chains bringing everything in these clean, sanitized, well-lit, air-conditioned space where you can get whatever you want, right? Or, you know, sort of satisfy every physical desire at the very least, where all of that sort of suffering and cruelty is invisible. And so that's for him, the modern order. It's sort of steadily grinding up everything that has any non-material value and creating these sort of systems that perpetuate intense cruelty, right? Even to level the animal world. And then delivering to you those sort of physical satisfactions. And if that's not enough, they give you drugs to um, keep you at enough of a level keel that you don't kill yourself. 
And so he wants an alternative to that. And the primary alternative to that system for him is religious faith, right? right? But he can't quite he can't quite get there, right? And there's repeated passages about how God is clearly a mediocrity, right? You can't really look out upon creation and not disrespect it in Welbeck's view. And there's a very sort of like demestre inflected contempt of nature, right? He doesn't see nature as like a beautiful thing. He sees with, you know, without, you know, human hands tending it, it's just this chaotic mess. There's a wonderful passage in the elementary particles where one of the characters is looking at a television program called like Animal Kingdom. And he's just horrified because every animal is like just trying to kill every other animal or take its food sources. And it's just this vast slaughterhouse. And he's horrified and disgusted, you know, especially by like the, the TV announcer who seems to think that like, oh, the natural world is so great. He's like, well, are you looking at this? <laughs> you know, this utter bloodbath and horror that is the natural world. Well, maybe uh, just one more point. Now, you've talked about Wilbeck and women, and it seems like erotic frustration is an engine of a lot of his work. Almost, I mean, that's something that is a common theme of almost every Welbeck novel. So the women tend to function more powerfully as memories yeah. than as persons. They sort of come to life when it's too late. Right. Or as fantasy, right? It's a sort of fantasy of what you could have and what you could feel if you had sex with these women, right? right? If, right. They, if you possessed them, yeah. right? In a way, you know, I think of this uh, line from the poet Jeffrey Hill, who's talking about poetry and, you know, enjoying a poem and how he doesn't really care whether, whether somebody enjoys a poem because, you know, poetry has a lot to do with joy, not so much enjoyment. Enjoyment is patronizing and possessive, as in the old archaic formulation, a man enjoying a woman's body. Mm-hmm. Enjoyment says, you are mine and you please me in my current mood. And the angel of poetry says, sod off, sod <laughs> off. Imagine Jeffrey Hill saying that in his very right. grouchy voice. And so there's, I think in in Wellback, you have a lot of characters who are deeply in need of access to joy, right? And where enjoyment of other people's bodies is like the closest that they can get. And it ultimately always sort of fades. And so it's more effective as memory or as fantasy than as actual reality. Well, Phil, thank you very much for coming in and talking to us about this book. Listeners can read the review in the March issue of Commonweal. The title review is Nothing Left Worth Saving. Thank you again, Phil. Thank you. Commonweal is the leading independent Catholic journal of public affairs, religion, literature, and the arts. We offer a number of subscription options. Log on to www.commonwealmagazine.org and click on the subscribe link. Okay, I'm here with Associate Editor Matthew Sitman, and you had the good fortune to be able to talk with E.J. Dion recently about his new book, Code Red, and of course, right in the midst of our very active political season. Yes, we actually, we recorded this just a few days after that contentious Nevada debate in the Democratic Mm -hmm. primary, and as you'll listen in the interview, E.J.'s new book is about how moderates and progressives 
can unite to defeat Donald Trump. So he's trying to offer a message of unity in the midst of a very fraught political season. And I think that's partly what made the interview interesting. I'm glad he was able to do it with us. Okay. So should we take a listen right now? Sounds great. Thanks, Matt. Thank you, EJ, for being here with me. Our listeners, they'll know you well. You've been a longtime Commonweal contributor and columnist, and we're really grateful at the magazine for your friendship and support. And we just couldn't pass up this opportunity to talk about your new book. I have loved Commonweal magazine since I first discovered it in the Fall River Public Library when I was 13 years old. <laughs> and it's great to so many of us in the country, not just people who've been around a long time like I have, but I think also a new generation of younger Catholics. It's an invaluable resource to the country, the church, and the world. So bless you all for what you do. (laughs) Thank you. Um, Thank you. Honest and true. I really do worry that progressives and moderates, who I argue have far more in common in our politics right now than they want to know, than they want to realize, will actually spend more time going after each other, and less time focusing on the much larger differences that they have, not only with Trump, but also with a radicalized Republican Party that is not even like the conservative Republican Party that we knew 20 years ago, and is nothing at all like the Republican Party that once included a lot of genuine moderates and even people like Jacob Javits uh, in New York, Ed Brooke in Massachusetts and others. Yeah. You know, we'll talk about how progressives and moderates can get along a little better and unite against Trump. But I thought your chapter on what's happened to the Republican Party really was one of the key chapters for me, because I do think sometimes you can mistake calls like yours for unity for a kind of wishy-washy, go-along-to-get-along sensibility. And really, you're arguing something much different, which is that the Republican Party really has become a vehicle for really a kind of fanatical extremist politics. And they've really shifted far to the right. I think all the political science shows this, that however far left you think Democrats have gone in the last few years, Republicans have gone much further right. And that that kind of really clear-eyed assessment of what's happening on the right informs your book as much as anything. What would be your brief summary of what's happened in the Republican Party and how that fits into your argument about what Democrats should do? One of the great joys when you write a book is that somebody actually reads it the way you thought you wrote it, and you just read it exactly the way I thought I wrote it. The chapter on the Republican Party, which is the second chapter in the book, and that is not an accident, um, called Missing in Action, Radicalized Republicans and the Problem with Bipartisanship. And that chapter begins with imagining what a different kind of conservatism and a different kind of Republican Party might look like. And it would still be pro-business. It would still be pro-capitalist. But it would accept that the market can't solve every problem. It would accept that there is a problem with economic inequality. It would be a party that could include some of the most important people in the party's history, Abraham Lincoln, Teddy Roosevelt, and Dwight Eisenhower. That party does not exist anymore. And I am very, very tough on calls for a flabby bipartisanship Because calls to bipartisanship now are asking people not only who are progressive, 
but also who are moderate effectively to give up their principles because the Republicans have moved so far to the right. And as you said, the political science on this, I think, is very compelling work by my colleagues and co-authors on my last book, Norm Ornstein and Tom Mann, work by Alan Abramowitz down at Emory, who has, by the way, introduced a very important concept, uh, political science, the idea of negative partisanship. Yes. Um, You're loyal to your party more because you hate the other party. All the numbers are very clear on the Republicans. If you look at members of Congress, Republican members are far and move way farther to the right than Democrats have moved to the left. If you look at people who call themselves Republicans and Democrats, Republicans have moved way farther to the right. Two thirds or more of Republicans are conservative, including at least a third who now call themselves very conservative. Democrats have moved somewhat to the left, partly because young people have moved to the left. Um, But Democrats are still 50 percent people who call themselves moderate or conservative. So I argue that virtually all the important debates about moving forward are now being carried out within the Democratic Party, between the center left and the left, or the more moderate wing and the more progressive wing. And I'll just take the one example of health care. Obamacare was actually the most conservative way you could try to achieve uh, something approaching universal coverage. Obama went to the Heritage Foundation for some of his ideas to Mitt Romney's plan in Massachusetts for other parts of the plan. And in the end, not a single Republican could vote for a plan that was actually more conservative than the one Richard Nixon introduced back in the 1970s. I think that really tells you where the Republican Party is. And it puts a lot of pressure on Democrats because they have to carry out the broad debate of both the center and left and still hold themselves together. And that is the central reason I wrote this book. Yeah. And I think that's a really helpful way of looking at some of the debates in the Democratic Party. But just uh, maybe a skeptical note here. You mentioned negative polarization. It's basically you're really against the other team. You kind of take your bearings from knowing what you're definitely against. And I wondered if you know that's so strong in our political life these days. Does that cut against your thesis at all? Meaning, no matter who the Democrats nominate, most Democrats are going to line up behind that nominee. And so why not nominate someone who might be more of a risk, like Bernie Sanders, who might excite younger people, people of color, especially younger African-American and Hispanic voters, working people who might not regularly be a part of the process and just say, all the Democrats are going to come home. So why not take a risk? Yeah, that's a good question. And it's a question that's been on my mind, actually. And I had a wonderful conversation with Tim Schenk over at Dissent, who was I read that actually a kind of um, argument along those lines or implicitly offering an argument. If I can make three quick points. One of the concepts I talk about in the book is the power of negative thinking. And I argue that if we look at the rise <laughs> of the right under Ronald Reagan, the initial impulses were negative, anti-communism, anti-government, anti-tax. Out of these antis, uh, Reagan built an entire conservative ideology, positive in quotes, conservative ideology. It's not my ideology, but it had a lot of components to it. I think Trumpism reminds us of the power of negative thinking and that what unites the center and the left is opposition to this mistreatment of immigrants and refugees, 
opposition to a violation of democratic norms and increasingly the rule of law itself, a corruption married to corporate power, very visible in the outrageous uh, corporate tax cut that was enacted under Trump, you know, thus giving the lie to him as some kind of populist. Out of those senses of outrage can come a new politics. So that's the first point I want to make. The second point I want to make is I think it's a mistake to put all of the emphasis in politics on either mobilization or persuasion. Every single campaign requires both mobilization and persuasion. And so I don't believe that a Democrat can beat Trump on a mobilization strategy alone. On the other hand, I think given polarization, mobilization will matter more to the party this year than it would have, say, 10 or 15 years ago. But if you look at what happened in 2018, and as you know, I have a whole chapter on 2018 as a kind of model for how you build a very broad coalition, you had both mobilization and persuasion because Democrats would not have carried a lot of those seats they carried in the House without persuading former Trump voters, both in the working class, but also in the suburban middle class to come out and vote for a Democrat. And so I don't think we can just blithely say any Democrat will get the same kind of vote. So why not take a chance? Uh, Just very quickly, we can talk about this more. I think, and you can tell me as somebody who has some sympathy for Bernie, I'm very respectful to Bernie in this book. I think Bernie has already performed an enormous service which is opening up a policy conversation that had been so narrowed down by the right wing. And that I'm glad Bernie has put single payer on the table, free college on the table. I'm glad the New Deal, a Green New Deal is out there. The question is, where do we go with these proposals? And I was quite heartened. I I joke, maybe she read my book, that AOT said the other day, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez said the other day, that look, if we start with a strong bargaining position and end up with a public option, is that so bad? And that is the kind of politics I'm talking about, um, which is why I love uh, the late Mike Harrington's term, and he was a democratic socialist, visionary gradualism. Yeah, I do think that's one of the aspects of your book I really appreciate it as someone who, I mean, I would call myself a democratic socialist. I, I like Bernie a lot. Of course, I like Liz Warren a lot too, to be honest. So I'm not, you know, just here to agitate for Bernie. But I do think that's one of the really smart points you emphasize is that it's good that even the term socialism, which came up in the debate last night, you kind of read it as, well, the prominence among uh, of socialism among young people, or at least interest in it, is a good thing in the sense that it's proof that for these debates, especially about economics that have been dominated by the right and then the Democratic Party tacking right, it's proof that the conversations expanded, that people are imagining new things that might be possible. And so I like what you had to say about that. And I I agree with AOC in that I'm not sure you can't start with your compromise, right? You kind of have to start with something, some kind of constructive, positive vision against which you'll measure 
compromise or which would be the first bid in a negotiation, and then you can you know, maybe tailor down a bit. Since you mentioned that your chapter on 2018 and the midterm elections is a kind of model, maybe you could say what this unity looks like for you. There are a couple of things I want to say. The you know, this book is not an argument that progressives have to give up and just move to the center. On the contrary, no, not at all. The central theme of the book is that progressives are right about some things and moderates are right about some things. And I say at the beginning that this, you know, this book may be as welcomed as a family counselor coming into a family quarrel, but I say they actually need to listen to each other. And that, you know, on the moderate side, I think the moderates are right about certain dispositional virtues in politics. I think the moderates are right about how change so often happens in our country step by step. A big idea that is enacted in pieces, to example, Social Security, which laid the groundwork for the program we have today. And two week civil rights acts that were passed in the 50s that helped open the way to the great Civil Rights Act and Voting Rights Act of uh, 64 and 65. But where progressives are right and moderates need to listen is that moderates have spent way too much time for the last 30 years negotiating with themselves. And they are so concerned with, gee whiz, can we have a proposal that might be acceptable to the other side that it's like bargaining up for a house and offering the asking price right at the beginning. That is no way to bargain. You should put on the table what you really want and then get there. Um, And in the Obamacare debate, it actually ironically might have been helpful if single payer had been in the debate more because it would have reminded people that even ideas like the public option, which is now seen as a middle-of-the-road position, are not in any way radical. And just to go briefly to 2018, there are a number of people I spent time with during the 2018 campaign that whom I write about, including Sherrod Brown and Stacey Abrams. But let me just talk about two in particular. One is Ayanna Presley up in Boston, a member of the squad who beat a rather progressive Democrat called Mike Capuano in a primary. Yeah, I remember that race. Yeah. Yeah. It was a fascinating race. And she really does represent the progressive energy. I love her slogan and used it as the title of a chapter, actually, Change Can't Wait, uh, in that election. At the same time, I also visited with another fascinating woman who won um, in 2018, Abigail Spanberger, who won in a district outside of Richmond that had been a Tea Party member's district. What I argue is that Ayanna Presley would not be enjoying the power she has in Congress now if candidates like Abigail Spanberger, who are more moderate than Presley, had not been, but still quite progressive. Progressives, moderates are well to the left of where they were 20 years ago in the Democratic Party. That's another important point of the book. But without moderates like Spanberger, Presley would not have the influence she has. But Spanberger would not have won without the energy of progressives who came in to help her in that campaign, who were the activists. It it was funny to have a book event that actually ratifies something in your book. I had (laughs) an event with politics and prose here in D.C., 
And I told the story and a man stood up and said, I am much more progressive than Abigail Spanberger. And I work my heart out on her campaign. And I think that is the kind of relationship we need to build in, in not only in the party, but as a broader movement for change. Yeah. Now, I want to ask one question I also had on my mind. So I grew up in central Pennsylvania, very working class, Bud Schuster's old district, if you know it. (laughs) But, you know, there's that's and it's kind of a prototypical Reagan Democrat kind of place. You know, people that voted for Bob Casey in the 80s and early 90s, but you are solidly Republican now. When I talk to my family, they're very interested in, say, Medicare for all. But they're also, you know, pro-life, kind of socially conservative. They're kind of a weird mix of issues then, right? Economically, you know, much more is up for grabs. But compare them to, say, the kind of Democrats that supported maybe John Ossoff in Georgia in like a, a southern suburban kind of congressional district. How do you kind of view those cross-cutting issues in the U.S., especially when you think about what the term moderate means? And also... You know, I I am haunted by that graph, you know, the four quadrants in U.S. politics, social liberalism or social conservatism, economic liberalism or economic conservatism. And there's that quadrant of people who are economically pretty progressive, but socially kind of conservative and how they fit into your kind of scheme that's split between progressives and moderates. I debated a lot with myself about the word moderate. And as you know, from the book, I write at some length about the imperfections of the word moderate. And I use it in part because I like it way better than centrist and because I'm trying to embody dispositional values and not simply ideological values. But the point you make is exactly right. Somebody who is, say, pro-life on abortion, but strongly in favor of trade unions and economic equality is in some sense moderate because they are in the middle of the conventional spectrum. Somebody who is a social liberal pro-choice on abortion, but anti-labor, they too might be called moderate and they don't agree on anything. Secondly, the quadrant social conservative and economic liberal has a lot more people in it than social liberal economic conservative. You wouldn't necessarily know that from a lot of the political conversation outside the offices of, say, Commonweal. That's a a reality that people need to think about. I grew up in a place called Fall River, Massachusetts, which is an old factory town, about 85% Catholic, 120% Kennedy Democrat in its time. And it's a very similar place to where you're from. I write in the book, uh, toward the end of the book, of how important I think it is for progressives in the first instance not to lose track of religion. There is a lot of alienation from religion among younger people in particular because religion has been entirely associated with nationalism, the right, and now Donald Trump. And an awful lot of young people are just saying, you know, if this is religion, I want no part of it. And I tell my more conservative Catholic friends, you realize, of course, that you are driving an awful lot of people away from faith if you insist that Catholic faith is entirely linked to uh, conservative uh, ideology. But there are core so-called traditional values that are not necessarily reactionary. Yes, anti-LGBTQ 
uh, stances are genuinely reactionary. I pray the church is going to someday move on that question. But there are a lot of people who are pro-life who are also consistent ethic of life people um, who believe in what Cardinal Bernadine taught, that being pro-life includes not only opposition to abortion, but also support for the poor, support for a fair economy, war as at best a last uh, resort, opposition to the death penalty. There are a lot of people like that. And if progressives kind of rule them out, they're going to have trouble forming a majority a coalition. It's why I appreciate the fact that Pete Buttigieg actually has been quite explicit in talking about this. I'd like to see Elizabeth Warren talking more about this. I did a whole interview with her online back in 2012, and I actually posted the interview on the Washington Post site in part because she spoke so movingly about her Methodist faith. I don't know if you remember, she gave basically a sermon down with the, the Rainbow Push Coalition a few months ago. That basically it was a sermon and it was about teaching Sunday school in a Methodist church in Texas. She laid open the scripture really wonderfully and compellingly, I thought. And, you know, I'm Catholic now, but I grew up Baptist. So I have to say, pardon my language, but my bullshit detector for (laughs) a certain kind of preaching is pretty finely tuned. And she impressed me. And so I agree. I wish she would speak a little more about her faith, because I think it would do, I think it would help her politically. And I just think you're right on the merits that Democrats can't leave that totally to the right. Right. You know, there are a lot of people who uh, have qualms about abortion, but still do not want it to be illegal. Yeah. I've written a lot over the years about efforts, maybe 10, 15 years ago from a coalition of pro-life and pro-choice Democrats who said, look, there's one thing we might agree on, which is it would be a very positive thing if we could reduce the number of abortions in America. By the way, they are coming down. They have been coming down in numbers. A lot of the things you would do if you wanted to decrease the number of abortions in the country would be things that progressives would want to do to support poor women, because there are many more abortions among poor women than there are among wealthy women. And at Fordham, former Senator Bob Kerry told a great story, and I'm obviously paraphrasing here, but he talked about, he said, imagine a woman who is a single uh, woman working in a factory in North Carolina who gets pregnant. Imagine in one circumstance where she has a good union contract, she has health care, she knows she will have health care after she has her child and the wherewithal to raise him. Then imagine the same woman with no health care, with inadequate wages, with no way to provide health care for the child after that child is born. Under which set of circumstances is that woman more likely to choose life? And boy, I want more politicians to give a speech like that. You know, the 2018 midterms, those are a good model of progressives and moderates working together. But when it comes to choosing a nominee to defeat Donald Trump in 2020, you do have to pick one person. And so the kind of splitting the difference in different parts of the country with different kinds of candidates, you can't do that. So what does unity look like practically when it comes to the rest of the Democratic primaries, and then what you'd like to see as we really head into the fall campaign? What should Democrats be doing and talking about? So just three quick issues on health care. I think the litmus test should be, will we give affordable 
good health insurance to every American, yes or no. I don't want to vote for any candidate who does not want to make sure everyone has decent health insurance. That's my litmus test. I don't think the road there should be the litmus test. I think we will get there more quickly, and it's urgent that we cover everybody as fast as we can. I think we will get there more quickly with plans that include public options, uh, lowering the Medicare eligibility age, which actually should appeal to single-payer advocates, um, perhaps even raising having a separate Medicare for kids. In other words, we can combine the ideas of what is now the center, which is really quite progressive in the left, uh, and start making progress. Similarly, on free college, free college is not such a radical idea. If you go back 30 years, 40 years, public universities were effectively free. That's the first thing that moderates need to recognize. This isn't a crazy idea. It was virtually the rule in public universities until we started underinvesting in them. Nonetheless, we may not get there right away. There may be paths there. Obama proposed uh, free community college for the first two years. And we have to also accept that there are a lot of people in the country who don't want to move immediately to college. One of my favorite lines, I wish he had been elected, was from uh, Richard Cordray, who ran for governor of Ohio. And he said, you shouldn't have to go to college to join the middle class. And I think we need, when we, we can't just talk about free college, we have to talk about all the folks who could get well-paying work if we had better economic policies and also help set them up for it. And then the Green New Deal, which I think everybody will be for in some form if we're ever going to solve this problem, because all the Green New Deal is is a basic statement that we urgently have to act on climate and we urgently have to take advantage of what the acting on climate involves to um, uh, promote economic development, but also protect people who might be hurt in the transition, make sure they have uh, economic opportunity. I think that all these issues present real opportunities for coalition building. But lastly, if I could close on dignity, I was, uh, you know, this idea is in my head because of Catholic social thought, uh, the equal dignity of every person. And I, when in 2018, I visited Ohio, I wanted to talk to Sherrod Brown. I was sitting in the back of a, his car interviewing him, and he gave a mini sermon on the dignity of work, which many people have heard, which I think is powerfully effective. He said, I'm quoting him, I think it's all about the dignity of work. I talk about how we value work, people who get up every day and work hard and do what we expect them to be able to do to get ahead. I don't think they hear enough from Republicans or National Democrats about this. I think the idea of dignity can bring us together. And I quote Robert Kennedy, who is someone who managed to talk to both African-Americans and to white working class people in a campaign where one writer, a, guy, a writer called Joel Dodge, called the promise of meaningful dignity for all Americans. And Bobby Kennedy said this. He said, we need jobs, dignified employment at decent pay, the kind of employment that lets a man say to his community, to his church, to his country, and most important to himself, I helped build this country. I am a participant in its great ventures. I am a man. Now, that gendered language is jarring, although it's a reminder 
what many older men who've rallied to Trump feel they've lost. But that promise is a promise for both men and women who work every day, as Jesse Jackson once put it. I help build this country is about both civic and economic dignity. And that is what I hope that moderates and progressives can come together on in finding common ground. I think we need to hear a lot more about dignity in our politics. Well, I agree with you there. And I think that's a a really apt way to close. Thank you, EJ, for being so generous with your time and talking with us about your book. And thank you, as always, for everything you do for Commonweal. I'm so grateful. And thank you for everything you do for our country and the world. The Commonweal Podcast is produced by Assistant Editor Griffin Olenek and the Commonweal staff in partnership with Sandberg Media. Wally Boudway composed the music, and David Dalt did the editing. For the Commonweal Podcast, this is Dominic Preziosi. <laughs>